You ever heard the phrase, things aren't always as they seem? You often can apply that uh, to people as well over the long term. People aren't quite what they seem. And before you think of those people, you might think about yourself just a little bit and how circumstances reveal that you might not be as you seem to others as well. One of the places that I think of when I think about this phrase is student ministry. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I think there's crowns in heaven somewhere for that. 10 years. Love student ministry, by the way. Still love student ministry, by the way. 10 years. The first three years, I was a middle school youth pastor for three years. And I just hung out with middle school. It was a bigger church. So we had a middle school ministry and a high school ministry. And then after three years, a high school guy left. And I did both for a few years. And then I was the high school guy. And depending on if you uh, liked me or not, you were stuck with me in that church for some of these kids for seven years. So the kids that came in when I came in and then I went to high school with them. But being a youth pastor is kind of, in in some ways, it's kind of like being a parent. You see the long term. You see the big picture from kids when they were fifth grade coming into sixth grade all the way through high school. And then many of those kids, one of the neat things about youth ministry is many of those kids I still spend time with, know, know where they're at uh, today. But in that, you see things change. You see that things aren't exactly the way they might appear. People aren't exactly who they seem to be. So let me give you two examples, and I'm just going to call them kid number one and kid number two. I still have a relationship with these people. Kid number one comes into sixth grade, and I'd already heard about him. Okay, I'd already heard about him from teachers. I'd already heard about him from other kids. He was the bad kid, right? The bad kid who already had a rap, and he comes into youth ministry, and yes, destruction followed his wake. Everywhere he went, whether it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, or camp, or whatever it was, he was that kid, but he pretty much owned that identity as the black sheep. And yet, after doing youth ministry for a little while, what I began to notice was this kid was honest. He was honest, whereas other kids, they put on the the mask that they could put on. They knew how to do the drill in their home and in their church. This kid was honest. He was just all out there. You got any of those kids? You knew exactly where he stood on things. And what that provided, he and I, over those six, seven years that I had him with some great conversations, with some openness to his heart, whether he agreed with me or the truth of God or not. But everybody saw him on the outside as the bad kid, the openly rebellious kid, kid number two. Kid number two I heard about as well when he came into youth ministry. He was the kid that was the golden child. He was the golden child in his family. He was the golden child at church. He signed up for everything. He served well. He had a a high sense of right and a high sense of wrong, and he was the natural leader of his group. And he served everywhere, everywhere in student ministry. When he got to high school, he began to serve with the junior high students. And when you looked at him, you thought, man, that guy's going to be a pastor someday. He's going to run something. He's got his life together in the future. He's going to be a great churchman. And yet he was too perfect. He was too buttoned up. And the reality was, I found out later, and he shared with me later, was he was living this double life. He just knew how to navigate it. He was living a life that he enjoyed, and he enjoyed the status and the achievement of being the good kid. And so he figured out 
how to convince everyone he was the good kid. And he loved the limelight of that. And yet his heart was far away from God. And if I told you some of the things that he was involved in, that he told me later as a high school student, he duped everybody. Kid number one. Kid number two, so sometimes things aren't always as they seem. Sometimes we aren't always as we seem, are we? You know anyone like kid number one, the wild child? Maybe it's an adult. I'm not just picking on the kids here. Maybe you know kid number two, got it all together, looks like they have it all together, comes to church, buttoned up, they don't have it all together. What kind of masks do we wear? On a Sunday morning, what kind of mask are we really wearing? And here's the thing, God knows. He's all knowing, he knows. And so here's the question. What do you think God's response is to the wild child that everybody knows is openly rebellious? What do you think God's response and heart for the holier-than-thou child or person that needs also to be rescued? That's what we're going to look at today. Would you open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible next to you somewhere close, page 874. Today we're going to see a gracious father who has two sons. Two sons. One is obviously rebellious. The second one is the golden child, the one who obeys. And yet, is he the good kid? That's the question. You know this parable. We've been in the parables. We started a sermon series on the parables a few weeks ago. And last week, we looked at really the first two of a triad of parables. We looked at the lost sheep and the lost coin. And the reason that we see these parables that Jesus gave because Jesus was hanging out with some outcasts. He was hanging out with some rebellious outcasts. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day that were supposed to be the shepherds, the ones who went after the lost sheep of Israel, they were grumbling and they were complaining because Jesus would hang out with these kinds of people. And so Jesus tells three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, and this one, the prodigal son. You know the you know the parable, many of you. You've been in church long enough to know the beautiful parable, the prodigal son, but there's actually two prodigal sons of the father. There's three main characters in this. You see the prodigal son, the wild child, the older brother who is the holier than thou, who kind of represents the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to, and then you see the main character in the story is the father who represents God. Let me read the first section, and we're going to look first at the younger brother and how the father responds to them, and then we'll look at the older brother and how the father responds to him. Look with me, Luke 15, verse 11 through 24 first. Jesus is speaking, speaking to the Pharisees, tax collectors, his disciples, and he said, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. So the father divided up his property between both sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be, look at it, in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Great job, right? And he was longing to be fed. He didn't have any food. There was a famine. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, underline that, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, God, and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as a hired servant. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt not contempt, but what? Compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's a great contrast, isn't it? The father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring out the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The younger son. Let's walk back through this. And here's what you're going to see broadly in this story. You're going to see the son's rebellion And then you're going to see him come to himself and you're going to see what true repentance looks like where he turns from his way and he goes back to his father. And then you're going to see the reconciliation of the father and the son. And then you're going to see rejoicing. What a great picture of the gospel that is in your life and my life. Look at the rebellion though. I want to unpack some things to clarify this. The rebellion is what? The son says, give me my property. Give it to me now, my inheritance. You know what effectively he's saying? Father, I wish you were dead. This is disgraceful. It's dishonorable. I want it now. And here's the wild thing. The father gives it to him. The father gives him this property. And here's the thing. He's the younger brother. And so in that day, he got a third of the property because he has one other brother and the older brother in the family always got a double portion. So he gets a third of it, he cashes out, and then what does he do? Look at the text. The text says that the father divided between them the property and then he cashes out. He leaves. He leaves his home. He's leaving for good. He's like, I don't want to be a part of this family. Not only is he leaving his family, he's leaving Israel, he's leaving his country. He's going to a far off country somewhere else outside of Israel. It's often the way we are when we want freedom. We make decisions that we think are best for us and we think we're going to be free and we think we're going to be out of the confines of our family and rules and we live free for ourselves, but look at what happens. It's kind of predictable. What does he do? He squanders his property, meaning he's cashed out, and he squanders all of his money. And how does he do that? The text says that he does that with reckless living, loose living, meaning he's partying. He's doing all the things he was taught not to do in his family in Israel. He squandered all of it with loose living. Sounds good, doesn't quite work out so well. And then guess what? Trouble comes because that's what happens in life. There's a famine, meaning there's no food. He's got no father. He's fatherless. 
He is homeless. He is penniless. And he becomes what? Foodless and friendless. Do you see it? There's nobody there anymore. He spent all his money on his friends and partying. And guess what? Were they really friends? Not so much. Kids, hear that. And so what does he do? He's in the far off country. And think about Jesus' audience. Jesus' audience are Jewish people and they're hearing all this and they're seeing the contempt of this child. And they're seeing this father who they wouldn't approve of what the father did to give the inheritance. Why would you do that to a child? And then he squanders it and they're saying, yeah, there's a moral lesson here that Jesus is trying to teach this child. This is what's going to happen when he runs off. Keep looking. He squanders it. He loses. And now he's got a job. It's a great job, right? Feeding pigs. What do we know about pigs in the nation of Israel? Unclean. He's not only, it's not that he's eating them, he's taking care of them. He's in the pig pen. Look, I had pigs as a kid. Not so fun. Nasty. You had to get special boots on to get in there and feed them because of their filth. And not only is he feeding them, He's desiring to be fed. Do you see the text that says pods? You know what the pods are? It's, farmers had these seeds and they would sell the seeds and the pods were the outside of the seed. It was just the covering of the seed. And nobody ate those. Not even the poor ate those. This is how low he's gotten. He's willing to eat the food of the lowly pigs because he's hungry. He's got nothing. Bad spot. This defiant, rebellious son is fatherless, he is homeless, he is penniless, he is friendless, and he is foodless. Have any of you parents ever said to your kid, do you want to learn the easy way or the hard way? You ever had that? Any of your parents told you that? This is the son, the rebellious, openless son that has to learn the hard way, but he's learned the hard way and he's at the end of himself. God sometimes has to do that to us, doesn't he? He has to get us to the end of ourselves before we look up. And that's exactly what happens here. So you've seen the rebellion, but look at the repentance. Look at the text, and it says this. He came to himself. This is a picture in the next few verses of what true repentance really looks like. There is first a recognition of where he's at. He doesn't think he's got it great at this point, does he? He knows he has need, and he thinks about his father and his father's household. He's like, man, even the servants have it better than me. He recognizes his need. That's the first step, isn't it? Do you recognize your need for a savior? Do you recognize your sin for what it is, or do you think you're okay? And the second thing that you see is resolution from him. I will go back to my father's house. Do you know how hard that would be? Why is he willing to do that? Because what does he say next? Look at it. He says that I've sinned. This is recognition of your sin. I've sinned not only against my father. First, I've sinned against heaven. That means first, I understand now that I've sinned against God. And I've also sinned against my father. I'll go back. Do you see the recognition? You see the resolution. And last, he resigns himself. He understands that he, there is no expectation that should come out of his father in return. There's no yeah, buts. There's not, hey, father, I wouldn't have done this. 
unless you would have done this. He makes no excuses, and he has no exceptions. There's no exception. He knows that he doesn't deserve his father's grace and his father's mercy, and so he resigns himself to go, maybe dad will let me be a servant. That's a great picture of what real repentance and confession looks like before God, isn't it? That's what he does. He repents, and then he goes. And we love the Father's response, don't we? It's a beautiful response. A number of you this week have talked to, this is my favorite text in the Bible. To see the Father's heart for the lost son. That even though he's done all of this, he doesn't deserve mercy, he doesn't deserve grace, he doesn't deserve anything from his Father. Then what does the text say? When his Father sees him from far off. So what does that imply? It implies that his Father is looking for him. He's waiting for him, and when he sees him, he runs. Do you know how undignified that is for a first century older man, father? They used to wear these long robes. Praise God, not I don't do that anymore. I'd wear shorts on a Sunday morning if they let me. It's too hot. He has this long robe on, and he hikes it up, and he runs to the sun. And listen, they're in this village. People see this probably. Probably. We don't know. Undignified, he runs to his son. If you're the son, you're thinking one of two things is going to happen. My dad is either going to take me by the ear and take me to the woodshed and wear me out, or worse, go read Deuteronomy 21. Worse happened that you can't read about in any kid book right now, I promise you. Either that's going to happen or he's going to receive it. The father does what? You see it. He embraces his son. We're not told if this son's had a bath. Doesn't look so. He's been with the pigs in the slum. He's probably dirty and nasty, no deodorant. And the, son, and the father does what? He embraces him. And out of, what does the text say? Compassion. He embraces him and kisses him. And what does the father do? Excuse me, what does the son do? He confesses. He confesses. I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And the father cuts him off. He receives it, but he cuts him off. And he says to his servant, go. Go get the best robe. Do you know who owned the best robe in the house always? You know whose robe that was? It was the father's robe. The best robe. Put him on him. Now. He's dirty. He's nasty. Put it on him. It's his. Go get the ring. Put it on his finger. The signet family ring. Put it on his finger. Go get the shoes that servants didn't wear. That only family members wore. Put it on him. He's my son. He receives him back. And all of those signs are signs of sonship. Okay? Those signs of sonship aren't just for the son to understand, even though he does. They're for everybody else to understand, the servants, the older brother, the village to understand. Because guess what? He's the bad kid, so everybody knows, right? Everybody needs to know, he's my son, and I receive him back. Go kill the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat that much like we do on carnivore diets, right? That sounds wonderful. 
I'm going to jump in. They didn't eat meat that much. Kill the fattened calves. You're having a celebration. That didn't happen very much, and you're inviting the whole, the whole village. Everybody's going to know that I'm celebrating my lost son coming back, who was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and the implication of the parable in Jesus' mind is spiritual. He was dead. He wasn't just thought to be physically deaf, but he was spiritually dead, and he's been made alive. He's repented. He's turned. Do you see it? Rebellion. Repentance. Reconciliation with the Father embraces him, receives him back, rejoicing. That's a beautiful picture. But understand something. That's a beautiful picture for me and you. If you think about your own kids, right? And returning, when you think about the gospel and that truth that many of you have believed that you've understood your rebellion against God, that you were lost. And he's sought after you, and he's found you, and you've repented, and you've come back, and heaven rejoices. But understand something. As beautiful as that picture is, and one of my favorite passages, Jesus' audience wouldn't have felt that way, probably. They would have looked at this picture and said, rebellious son who needs discipline. Permissive father. Permissive father, you should have never given him the inheritance. You should have never done that. He get, got what he deserved. Oh, he's running back, all right, but we're taking him to the woodshed. That's what's going to happen. And worse, if we need to, we'll take him to the city gates and the elders will, Old Testament, stone him because he's evil and he's rebellious. That was the perspective, I promise you, of the audience that was listening to that. So guess what? It's even more radical than you think it is. It's even more beautiful than you think it is because it would have wrecked the minds of the people listening so much to go, hey, if there is a person who is in that much need and has pursued his own path that hard and he turns and he repents and he comes back, you know what the right response is? It's not, I told you so. It's not, you'll take your punishment now. It's embrace, it's compassion, it's love, it's rejoicing because the son was dead and now he's alive. It would have been more radical for first century ears to hear that than it is for you and I to see the beauty of the grace of God. There's rejoicing. Here's your thought, your first thought. The father longs for the defiantly rebellious child to come back home. You catch that? But can I tell you something? It's even better than that. This is a parable, and it, and it bears out this truth for the audience. But here's the, the even greater truth. And we saw it a little bit last week in The Lost Sheep. Not only does the father wait to see the lost come back, he seeks them out, right? Lost sheep, I'm going to go find it because it's lost valuable coin that I've lost. I'm going to go seek it out. That's what God does. Here's the beauty of it. Not only does the Father wait for you, but he sends. Who does the Father send to the far country to find you? He sends his son. The Father sends his son, Jesus, 
to go to the far country for you, to seek you out, to find you, to die at the hands of the religious leaders of the day and the sinners of the day, to die there for you, to take your place. It's even better. He sends his son. And you know what else he does? He sends his spirit. He sends his spirit to bring about new life from death. Do you see it in this text? He was dead. The father didn't say he was just lost. He was dead. He was spiritually dead, and he's now alive. And he's not just alive because he repented. He's alive because God turned the lights on for this kid. He turned the lights on, and he enabled him to see his need. That's what the Bible says. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not repentance that leads God to be kind. God takes the first action, and then we repent, and we turn. See, the gospel is even more beautiful than that. Let me ask you, are there any former rebellious prodigals in the room like this? Anybody ever been there? (laughs) Maybe. Nope, not me. Man, God had to wreck shop, didn't he, in your life? You were heading this way. And he wrecked some things in your life. He got you down to the pig pen where you had to look up and realize what the mess of life that you've made for yourself and your need for him, your need for a savior. And he repented and turned and he embraced you. That's the gospel. And he celebrated. And it's often true, not always, but it's often true of prodigals that they really understand the depth. They don't really understand, they do understand the depth in other people's lives of people's rebellion and people's sin, and God wants to use you in that. He's given you a testimony in which he wants to use you with the same kinds of folks that you were. I can't, I, I can't move past until the next piece until I feel like I need to address something. There's a lot of parents in here, a lot of parents of little kids and maybe some teenagers, and there's a few parents in here that have older kids. And you, I, I would guess that you can't help but look at this text and think about your own kids. And there's probably parents, some kids in the room that you've raised right, right? You've raised right. You've done the best you could. You didn't do it perfectly. You wonder about the mistakes that you made in parenting, but they're like this prodigal who's rebelled. Can I tell you, keep praying for them. Keep loving them in spite of them. Keep opening the door. Keep looking for them to come back. Don't give up any more than God gave up on you. Look for opportunities. If you need somebody to talk to, There's probably other parents in the room that have that story as well. If you need to call my mom, I'll give you her number. She had two straight and narrow kids, and then she had me. All right? 21 years worth of it. Running the other way. There's hope. You keep loving your child the way God has loved you. Even if they're in the pig pen and you go, that's disgusting. Don't look at it and say, You're shaming the family name. Do you think that wasn't the case here? Don't let your pride get in the way of loving your kid 
even in the pig pen. Love them, pray for them, care for them. And when they come back, embrace them, receive them. We've read this story, and I wish we could stop here and sing Amazing Grace. Because it's a beautiful story, isn't it? I wish we could stop here and be done and go celebrate and eat. Y'all are hungry, I know. But there's more to the story. There's the older brother. He kind of ruins the story for us today a little bit. There's the older brother. Let's look at him for a minute. Verse 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and he had came and drew near to the house. Remember, before I keep going, remember, this is the older brother Remember in the beginning of the story, the father, because of the younger son who was rebellious, the older son cashed out too. So guess what? All this property and all the house and all the animals, it's all his. Understand that. It's all his. He can throw himself a party if he wants to. He made out well because his brother's consequence. His brother... Now has nothing. He's restored. The brother's restored, right? But the brother, younger brother, has nothing. He has his father's love. He has his care. But there is consequence for the younger brother, even though he came back. The older brother would know that. Now let's read it. He's got all kinds of reason to receive his brother. Look at it. Older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard the music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what's going on. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was happy? What does it say? He was angry. And he went back in and partied for his brother? No. He refused to go in. His father came out, meaning he came out of the party. And he entreated him. He pleaded with him. But he answered his father. Here's why he's mad. Look at these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Golden child. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, do you see the distance, came, who has devoured your property, here's the list of sins, with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, this is the father. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting. We had to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. So let's just walk back in it. He's off working, right? Because he's the older golden child brother who obeys. He's working. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he hears the party when he's coming home. His brother's there. The servant says, your brother's come home. And instead of being happy that his brother's home, he's angry. He also refuses to go in. Notice the contrast. Here's the older brother now who is outside home, right? The younger brother leaves because he wants to do his own thing, and now the older brother is in the same place. He's out. Catch that. He refuses to come in because he's angry, and he finds out a couple reasons why he's angry. Here's heart motives coming out right here, right? He's angry first at his father. 
Think about spiritual application. He's angry at his father. He won't come in. Now, here's the deal. There's all these people likely at the party, so everybody knows there's a domestic issue going on now. The father leaves. The son's out. The son's upset. The older son's upset. The good kid is upset. I, and what does he say? Here's the reason. I obeyed. I served. He's jealous. He's resentful of his father and his love for his younger brother. But what's revealed? What's the motive for the older brother serving? Is it because he loves his father? Is it because he wants something from his father? See, his heart motives are revealed. Notice that. And he's also, look at it, but look at the, what's the father's response. He pleads with him. He's not mad at him any more than he's mad at the younger son. He's a gracious father. He pleads with him to come in. And then it's revealed that he's mad at his brother. This son of yours. Not my brother anymore. He's, opera- he's been too disobedient. He's shamed the family name. He's not my brother anymore. He's your son. You're the one throwing a party for him. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And let me list back to you, dad, all of his sins. We don't know if the younger brother did all of those things, or maybe he did. doesn't really matter, but the older son is keeping record. Here's what the older son doesn't get. He doesn't understand sonship very well, does he? He doesn't understand that the father's love, even for him as the older son, is not about working in the field. It's not just about his obedience. He's his son. And that's the response that the father has after that. Look at it. What's the father's response? Secondly, to the angry, resentful, motive-bearing older son, he reminds him what? He reminds him of his love for him. He reminds him of his sonship that he has with the father. You're always with me. It means I love you. He also reminds him that everything is his. <laughs> everything. Two-thirds, remember, double portion. It's all yours. The younger brother had consequence to his action. Yes, we're celebrating him, but it's all yours. I've given it all to you. You understand the older brother, though, don't you? Let's say in your family, let's just get real. In your family, let's say you were the good kid. (laughs) And you had a rebellious sibling. And that rebellious sibling got a lot of attention, didn't they? Albeit negative attention, probably. But they got more attention than you got. It's easy to get resentful, isn't it? And also, maybe, you observed when the rebellious kid did anything good, like low bar good, they got praised. You never got praised. Anybody been there? Is it because your father and your mother didn't love you? Or because it was because, maybe it was because it's all yours. You're always with me. I love you. See, it's easy for resentment. It's easy to understand, especially if that's your background. It's easy to understand the frustration of the older brother. But the older brother is missing the point. 
missing the point that we had to. This is what the Father says. The Father gives him truth. He says, we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice because your, son, your brother was dead and now he's alive. Come join the party. See, this situation reveals some things about the older brother's heart, doesn't it? I'm a lake guy. I don't really like the beach. I'm a lake guy, so I love going to beautiful lakes, to look at them, to fish, to get on a boat and go around, to ski. You ever seen a lake when it's drained? It looks a bit different than it did, doesn't it? You know what's revealed? When it's drained, what's revealed when it's drained is all the underbelly, all the stuff underneath that you didn't know was there, the sandbars that need to be cleaned out, the debris, the sunken boat that needs to be cleaned out. And this is what's happening with the older brother. His heart motives are revealed with the circumstance of his older brother returning and being celebrated. And so his heart is revealed. He's the golden boy. Everybody sees him that way. But he has heart issues too. He's rebellious too. Here's your thought. The father pleads with the blind self-righteous child also to come back home. See, the older son just got lost. He's just as lost in his holier-than-thou motives and attitudes. He's just been able to cloak them in his self-righteous wardrobe of moralism. Listen, moralism is the enemy of the gospel, not just hedonism, not just the openly rebellious. You and I live in Magnolia, Texas. We live in the overall Bible Belt. We've got all kinds of moralism coming into the church and saying, I'm a Christian because my parents were and I was in the home. I'm a Christian because I do X, Y, and Z, as if coming to church and religious good deeds are a great hobby. You think you earn salvation by all your goodness. That is an enemy of the gospel. It's just a more blinding enemy than the apparent and this is Jesus' point. To illustrate that, let me tell you a, a short little story. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of a woman in his church. Been in his church for 20 years, been married to an unbelieving spouse, unbelieving man for 20 years. Not only was the man an unbeliever, didn't know Christ, he was unfaithful in all kinds of ways. There was adultery, there was desertion, and yet... This woman continued to stay in this marriage for 20 years. God never came to church, never participated, didn't like that she did. She was there every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, serving, faithful. And the church loved her and cared for her and surrounded her. She served in every way possible. And something amazing happened. 20 years in, her unbelieving, unfaithful husband came to know Jesus. He comes to know Jesus, and the church celebrates, but there's something odd that happened with this lady. People began to notice that she was really mad. She wasn't happy. She wasn't celebrating. Don't know how, but all those years of being effectively the victim, of being encouraged, produced something in this lady's heart, apparently. 
she wasn't ready to receive and celebrate the salvation of her own husband because what she got out of being that person, she had likely built up resentment and anger at her husband and began to live out of this moralistic identity. See, sometimes when we come to a story like this, the prodigal son that we know and love is the rebellious one, and we see ourselves in that, but we have a hard time seeing ourselves as the older brother, don't we? Sometimes that's because, honestly, we're blind to it like the older brother was. But sometimes it's because we really believe in a moralistic truth rather than the gospel itself. The older brother shows up in our lives sometimes, doesn't he? Sometimes he shows up in our lives and we think we really know the Lord and we don't. And other times as believers, he shows up in their lives. Check it out. When somebody else is celebrated, how does that make your heart feel? Well, I serve more than they do, right? That's older brother rising up in you. Somebody else is praised. And there's this person, I know I've been praying for them, but I really don't want them to come to faith because they hurt me way back when. So I'm not real thrilled about it. They don't deserve it. That is the lie of moralism that says that I'm not as lost as that person. Interestingly, this parable, we're not told how it ends. Isn't that frustrating? We don't know what happened to the older brother. Here's the point. Jesus is telling the parable to who? Primarily. The Pharisee. He wants the Pharisee to see that he, that, that he is the older brother. But notice the love of Jesus for the Pharisee. You got to catch this. Jesus loves the Pharisee, even though the Pharisee is the guy or the people who are coming after Jesus, who put him on a cross, even. He loves the Pharisee enough to say, You're the older brother. Will you not come back into the house? Will you not see how lost you are too and repent and believe? And guess what? We'll celebrate you too. It's open-ended. It's a call to the Pharisees. Aren't you glad? I mean, I know some of us in here are the parable or the prodigal son, as we know him, the rebellious, openly rebellious person. But some of us are moralists. And it's really hard when we get into this passage to go, yeah, but I still think I'm better. <laughs> if I'm honest, I still think I'm better than the openly rebellious one. It's hard. That's good news for you. That's good news for us that Jesus loves and will forgive the openly or bl blind, self-righteous person just like he will, the openly rebellious one. I told you, I'll finish with this, I told you the story of those two students. I didn't tell you where they ended up. Kid number one, openly rebellious, wild man, comes to faith in Christ. And you know what? He's a dad now. He's married, and he knows how much he's forgiven for. He understands the depth. He's still a little bit wild man. But he has two boys, and I told him, not too long ago, they're going to be just like you. Knows the Lord. God's rescued him. 
Kid number two. Kid number two goes off to college, living the double life. Everybody thinks he's the golden child. All that's exposed. Can't live that way anymore. And you know what? He came to the end of himself as well. And he realized he needed rescue as well. And he comes back and the father embraced him too. Both of these guys, both the wild child and the self-righteous, were rebellious. Believe that. They were both rebellious. It just looked different. And God's grace rescued each of them just the same. Here's your takeaway. Nobody earns or deserves God's grace. But he offers it both to the rebel and to the religious. Believe that. Also, go and do the same. If there's rebels around you that are in the pig pen, get down there with them. You're not above it. Seek them out. Pray for them. Who's the rebel in your life that is hard to love, that is hard to share the gospel with? Love them where they're at. Pray for them where they're at. Who's the blindly religious that thinks all the things they do, maybe church attendance as well, maybe voting conservatively as well, I don't know, that thinks all the things they do, the moral things they do, make them right with God. Who's that person? Love them as well. Do the same. Let me pray.